Hi guys, this is Crime Scene Analysis. I am Angie. I'm Jess. And I'm Caroline. And we are here with your breakdown of all things episode 202, Speak of the Devil. Mm. No thank you, but we're gonna. <laughs> um, this one is written by the amazingly talented Eileen Jones and directed again, as was the first episode of the season, by Antonio Negron. So hats off to their skill and talents. Yes, yes, yes. And let's go. Let's just dive right into it. So at the 15 second timestamp, we have Martin in group with everyone. And this is the first time that we're going to see something that is an overarching theme for the entire episode, which is this theme of confiding your sins or your, um, your issues in someone. So the first time this happens, it's Martin. And ironically, the first time that it happens, it's very much like farcical confiding. Um, he's so proud of his babies and they're doing just fine and blah, blah, blah. And in actuality, the Whitleys are kind of falling apart at the seams at this point. So it was a nice way to introduce a theme that's going to happen. I mean, honestly, multiple, multiple times throughout the episode. In terms of the English analytical side of this, this is one of the first times that we've seen a theme pop up as many times as it does throughout the episode. Um, and shout out to Hector. What's up, Hector? We missed you, buddy. I appreciate that they also have a mini overarching theme of just sexual references throughout this entire episode. Oh, um, hey. With, you know, Hector enjoys making love, apparently, <laughs> as it's one does. So yeah, it's always nice to see him come back, just like we were super stoked when we realized that Mr. David was indeed coming back and that Indicott had not gotten him and his little talons. Yeah, so like, one of the things I wrote in my analysis was this episode brings up sex almost as much as 109 which the entire episode was about sex. Oh my God, good And point. I just couldn't stop laughing. I couldn't stop laughing at the, apparently all the Whitley parents think their son has some massive sexual dysfunction issue or I, I don't know. So I, I mean, imagine as a mother to a son and maybe I will be that mom, I don't know. But just to be like, you can talk to me about anything. Is it sex? It's so funny to me. As I think Jessica said, I don't remember the timestamp, but she's like, it's not meddling it's mothering I was like yep that's, oh, yeah. that's just the whole thing with her and I love that Ainsley totally flips the script like I have a couple points where we talk about like Jessica is so aghast like oh my god how could you have done such a thing she learned from a professional at the 55 minute mark I do have a shout out to our music supervisors and the song that they selected for this moment I called it Malcolm's ambush scene because he tells his mom you know why are you ambushing me um, and the song that's playing in the background, I originally thought it was One Bourbon, One Scotch, One Beer by George Thurgood because it had that guitar. And I'm like, this is a really bizarre selection for this moment. Turns out it is not that song. Um, it is actually a song called Baby Did a Bad, Bad Thing by Chris Isaac. And he just repeats for a lot of it, this phrase that's this really deep voice. It's like this baby did a bad, bad thing the whole time. Malcolm is like, I'm fine, nothing's wrong. And Martin is, um, it does that nice weave montage where Martin is talking about how his kids, his babies are great. They've never been better, blah, 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 all over this, this song. And I just thought it was so funny that this was the choice. It's so dead on the nose with Malcolm. Like he's done something horrible. And then it's Ainsley too, who is the baby of the family. Yeah, she did a bad, bad thing as Love well. It. I love, did you guys notice the moment right after this where Malcolm comes in for brunch and she has the same reflection in the knife that he had in the first episode? Oh yeah. Yep. 
and it's like a very split second I yeah so after we see that little parallel back to the the first episode confirmed for us that she has mm, she really thinks that malcolm is the one who killed endicott because she's holding the knives and she goes is this what you did it with at, at 229 malcolm is on the phone before brunch begins malcolm is on the phone you know kind of hissing at at martin about you know yeah life's great thanks you're helping a lot i have to ask we need some confirmation writers they have to have paid off mr david the man is sitting right there listening to every conversation either mr david is just an imbecile which i refuse to believe i love mr mm -hmm. david or he's got some whitley change in the bank account for sure or endicott was paying him off from back in the day and in mr david's head it's just like baseball stats and other stuff <laughs> yes. it's like anything to tune this crazy bastard yes. out okay so let's hit up brunch the, the one-liners at brunch make my day i absolutely loved the like there's still vodka in the orange juice right i love that we're we're hitting some humorous points and especially given the density of, of some of the stuff that's going on you know with with jt and stuff it's nice to have those moments they were back to back like on top of their game probably i hope the whole fandom's favorite one and mine that just like sent me dying was ainsley and her does he let you wear his turtlenecks and it wasn't just what she said, but it was the way she said it. It's a hilarious nod to the fact that we all joke about, you know, Gil's turtlenecks, but it's also kind of an intimate question. One of the most kind of sexy things that women tend to do is wear their boyfriend's clothes. Like always that, sh like the shot of the dress shirt buttoned up and nothing else is supposed to be like the epitome of sexy. So like literally for Jessica, it's not the button up. It's Jessica like post-coital throwing the turtleneck on to go to the bathroom. <laughs> Angie, oh my god. Oh, it's like I didn't need to. Oh god. No, I'm loving, I'm loving this picture in my head. <laughs> but think about it, like it makes me laugh so hard. <laughs> That's literally what that that reference is for Ainsley. That is the implied reference to yeah. Ainsley. And it just, I was like, that is amazing. <laughs> At the 514 mark, Malcolm shows up to the scene of the crime and he talks to JT. I really kind of appreciated this is the first time Malcolm straight up admits, oh, when I say I'm fine, it's always a lie. It was nice to just hear him vocalize like, oh yeah, that's always BS. Whenever I say I'm fine, that's total trash. That's not true at all. And I thought it was really nice to see Malcolm really like reach out to him and say, hey, do you want to talk? Are, are you okay? Obviously JT's like, no, I really don't. But it was yeah. nice. So JT says the words creepy ass case. And so we already from the sound and lighting and just the whole camera angle of the church, we already have these bad vibes. And before they get ready to go inside, he does the sign of the cross. Pretty much nobody does that unless they're they're Catholic, a practicing Catholic. So it's essentially just literally making the sign of the cross on your body. And in Christianity, there's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And you you pretty much say it's a tiny prayer of blessing, protection, pretty much anything, and respect. And you do it with your right hand as well. I thought this was a nice callback because like we had talked before in the trip, you kind of realize that, okay, it seems like pretty much everyone on the team, they were raised Catholic because with the exception of Malcolm, every one of them cross, um, Gil even kneels before entering the pew. I mean, he follows a lot of those Catholic kind of rules and regulations. So I like that kind of call back like okay we know that they those three our main three players on the NYPD seem to be Catholic at least and so they would of course be like let's bless ourselves before we go into this crazy because something's about to go down as we enter the church huge shout out to the camera work 
it's amazing to watch like this spinning camera and it's zooming in at the same time. And again, the glory that is Mr. Nathaniel Bloom. We have these like screeching strings as you're zooming in. It's very classic horror film, dun dun dun, you know. Um, and that was really neat. And then another shout out a little bit later to the amazing camera angles of Adresa in a lift. Camera is above Adresa looking down. We've got the Aramaic on the floor. We've got all of our cast and all this amazing set dressing and stuff behind it. The camera work inside this church was insane. And we saw from a lot of behind the scenes stuff from the crew that we can post um, online that like they, they did their research in this church and it's it's just gorgeous and absolutely you should be taking advantage of every angle you can in that i absolutely adore the focusing on adresa's face and the the just her morbid fascination with the body because um because caroline and i know that feeling of just like morbid curiosity and interest in something especially when it comes to true crime so that was just that was just hysterical to see that was so awesome yeah, so a proper ME, you have to have some form of that. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Otherwise, that's just not that profession for you. That's not the yeah. f- part of your field yeah. to go I mean, into if you don't. Yeah, I mean, I have that, but I definitely know that's not my profession. <laughs> I yeah. love it. Like Angie mentioned, there we see that there's a symbol on the floor. So they get through, you know, talking about the crime scene. And Malcolm mentions, Malcolm or Adjusa mentions that the blood actually makes a symbol on the floor. And at first, as they started to zoom out and I heard the word symbol and I said, oh, it's Hebrew. Uh, and Malcolm also said, oh, I think it's Hebrew as well. Because if you know anything about the Bible, the first language that you encounter when studying it, at least not in English, is the Hebrew language. And then actually the nun steps up and says it's it's Aramaic. Now, Aramaic is probably a really weird word for some people to hear because it's a dead language. But it actually, it was the language uh, around the time that Jesus, the historical figure, was actually alive. So the nun says that it spells out the the name Abaddon. And I'm going to hang my head in shame for a minute as the theology student because I was just like, okay. Didn't ring a bell for me. But for some reason, despite the fact that Malcolm says he's not religious, he knows the, he knows that name and he also knows the full name, the the actual name, where it's from, and the more colloquial name. So Abaddon the Destroyer, and Malcolm says the angel from the abyss from the book of Revelations. And he says it's more commonly known as the devil. I'm going to go back to what Malcolm said. Uh, The book of Revelations does not exist in the Bible. Okay, sorry, <laughs> theology student over here. I'm going to go into a little bit of theology really quick. I'm not going to try and melt brains. Go off. A book is actually revelation. It's common to, for people to mistakenly add an S to it, but, and I will forego my Hamilton reference here, it changes the intended meaning of the title and of the entire book. <laughs> so the first line of the book of Revelation is actually the revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his servants the things that needed to be done. Long sentence, but essentially Jesus has been revealed in the Christian tradition and it's a revelation. It's the revelation and the returning of Christ, not multiple revelations. So like I said, changes the intended meaning. So the book of Revelation is essentially 
all about the apocalypse, at least in the, the Christian tradition. So that's why it's uh, super important to this scene and the rest of the story because of the Abaddon, the angel from the abyss. There's two languages mentioned. Uh, we've already said them. So Hebrew is the language of the Jewish people. And it is what the entire Hebrew Bible or for the Christians, the Old Testament was written in. And so that is why it is mentioned by Malcolm. I didn't study Hebrew, but I did learn how to say prayers and sing some songs and identify some words in it. And Aramaic, like I said, is a dead language. Uh, Hebrew is still used, but it's used uh, in synagogues during their worship services uh, and prayers. And Aramaic, like I said, was around the time that Jesus was around. And the funny thing here is that the book of Revelation is from what we call the New Testament, but this symbol is written in Aramaic, but the book of the New Testament was written in the Greek language. So there's some layers there. So I'm like, this is cool, but that's really funky how it would be written in Aramaic rather than maybe Latin, which is, as we will find later on, a language used in the Catholic church. Mm -hmm. Greek is not used in the Catholic church, mm -hmm. but the book that this came from was written in Greek. So, so going off of what Jess had said about the writing on the floor, I actually had a different take on that and it's more of a kind of like a spoiler towards the end but also this sort of back and forth kind of wondering whether or not you know things are really faith-based or if there's really possession or how much religion actually has power in this episode versus sort of like a mix between what is reality and what is fiction when we see the writing on the floor and Malcolm immediately recognizes the name of it, one of the things that had cued me into the fact that there really is not supernatural forces at play here is in an actual exorcism, because there are actual exorcisms, which I did so much research into this and I found out way more about exorcisms than I ever wanted to know. The main idea is that when you are possessed, um, the demon does not want to tell you its name because giving away its name gives power to the exorcist. So when I saw the name written on the floor, I was like, are you kidding? Like, <laughs> this is, I don't know if the writers were like, weren't aware of that fact or not, but like the whole point of the exorcism is, you know, you're trying to draw the demon out and the priest is asking over and over again, what is your name? And the demon of course is like, no. <laughs> the fact that we just get the name right away, I was like, oh, well, okay, solved then. It's clearly not a demon. <laughs> Done. <laughs> Done. <laughs> I do want to hit on something that kind of is another theme that will follow throughout, but it starts in this particular episode, and that's Malcolm's kind of irreverence, I guess is the best word. Um, he opens, the first time we really see him inside the church, he's walking up the steps, and he almost says the phrase, holy shit, and Gil cuts him off. He's like, no, which is, okay, we know for sure that Gil is a very practicing at that point, like not in the church, little boy, we don't do this, sir. And then there are multiple moments throughout the episode right after this he doesn't address the archbishop with any of the like correct terms not your eminence not your grace none of that stuff whereas Gil absolutely does he is very much we need this this is an investigation you need to do this for us and he's not building the rapport as as Gil puts it 
And he also repeatedly steers conversations away from faith. There's an example where once he has asked for files and the archbishop says, no, that's, you know, that's private information. And Gil kind of tries to smooth things over. They're back alone. And Gil says the phrase, have faith. And Malcolm literally scoffs. Like he's like, and then throws the Nietzsche quote at him about it. So throughout the episode, you will see moments, especially in interactions with Gil, where like faith is brought up and he's asking him what's going on. Are you okay? And Malcolm is like, yeah, whatever faith. Yeah. Okay. And he's just kind of not having it. But then gradually the respect kind of starts to change. By no means is he then suddenly like a full-on believer or practicing or anything like that by the end of it. But when we get there, even in that last discussion he has with the priest before the climax of the episode, there's a very big difference in how he addresses him and the church there. Not that this is massively huge, but given that this is a very biblical-based episode, I immediately jumped on the fact that our painter, and spoiler alert, I'm guessing you've seen it, the killer of the episode's <laughs> name um, was Jonah. Mm-hmm given that that's a very biblical Hebrew name. Um, I knew the story. A lot of people know the story. Even some non-Christians know the story. Like, hey, the dude got swallowed by a whale and then he prayed for forgiveness and he got spit up. Yay. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was very shocked. I never actually looked up the like definition of the name Jonas. I was like, oh, in my brain, I'm going, this has got to have some symbolic meaning, right, writers? Let's go, let's go. And I looked it up and it means dove. Yeah. Oh, yeah, there's no. So, I mean, sort of maybe if you want to go hardcore analytical, but even my level of analytical is like you're fishing for something if you're if you're going to try to connect that. So not nearly as exciting as I'd hope that particular mini deep dive would be. And two other little kind of last things before we skip on. First of all, massive shout out to the wardrobe department in this church scene. The blue coat on Tom is amazing the way his eyes pop like they know how to play with our leads eye color he has amazing eye color compared to you know a lot of other people in the business and they know how to pick stuff that just make his eyes look like they've been cgi'd they're so blue and i like i at at one point like i just lost track of what i was supposed to be analyzing because i was like did they mess with his eyes and then i realized it's the coat and i was like oh wow that was an amazing choice we need to bring the coat back it's the clothes, it's the lighting in the church itself mm-hmm. that it uh, it was the perfect, everything just came together. Beautiful set. I mean, honestly, he could have set like the whole episode there and it would have just, you could have found something new every time to have in the background and it was gorgeous. Gorgeous church. This is my one complaint I think that I have throughout the whole episode. Mm-hmm. And I'm hoping it will change given promos for what we've seen coming up. I'm a little over bless you writers i love you with all my heart i'm a little over the like well i know a guy that used to do this and then that's our excuse to go see martin like boo, you don't need an excuse to go see martin you guys have a huge secret at this point you don't have to be like gee golly guys guess who knew where a guillotine was sold and then you go there like in this one he literally says the phrase but i do know a guy and we already said that like we just said almost the identical phrase so I know now maybe with the next episode, he's not exactly in Claremont uh, at that point. So maybe that's not a problem anymore. But I don't think we need to make an excuse for him to go. We know that he goes to help him with cases. We know that he's going to go to help him with all the bananas that is the, the Whitley life right now. But that quote, like it was the one time I think maybe in the history of the show that I just went, oh. <laughs> yep, exactly. I don't have the- to do that. 
the phone a friend thing is getting really old <laughs> agreed agreed to um, counteract that one of my favorite lines from the writers in the history of ever is it smells like urine oh that would be the urine <laughs> as someone who works and has worked in multiple medical settings that was just it was like yep that's perfect <laughs> Oh my I just love like I was waiting like oh what is it and it's like oh oh it's the urine good mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and then we uh, have Heather Ball Martin yes <laughs> that is all I can think of they did that zoom out and I went they're human tether balls what, what are we doing oh my Aren't god you're right I hadn't even noticed that I hadn't I noticed it not. either but I could not unsee it after you said it yes and I rewatched twice after this and I was just like <laughs> Oh, they really oh, do so look funny. like you're it was so funny. Like all I could picture was Malcolm just getting mad at Martin going slap and then he's <laughs> around the thing. Knock him over to the other side until it comes back and then <laughs> And then the other way, bam, and he comes yep. back around the other side. In the yard with Tetherball Martin, we also have Tetherball Friar Pete. Okay, Friar Ooh. Pete freaking me out the minute the minute he yeah, just given all the creepy vibes just gotta what say what intro what an intro to like let me stare at you without blinking and then just walk until my cord runs out and even malcolm's like jeez like he backs up like whoa dude um i'm gonna have a 30 second praise rant on the actor christian borrell i have to i'm a broadway nerd so if i didn't do this my soul would like burn um so if you did not know that actor playing fire Pete is christian borrell he's a veteran veteran Broadway actor. He's won two Tony Awards, both for a play and for a musical. He has the pipes of a god. They are amazing. He has a great voice. I actually saw him live in, uh, I think it was 09, maybe. I went to New York to see Legally Blonde the Musical, which was amazing. And he was Luke Wilson character of Emmett from the movie in it. He was absolutely amazing. Met him at the stage door. He's like the sweetest person ever. You know, sometimes I've been to stage doors and sometimes it's just like, oh, cool, thanks. And they move along. They're tired. They've had a double show day, whatever. He was like legitimately asking, what was your favorite part? Like he was doing so much more than just let me sign this and move down the line of a hundred people. Um, and so he was super, super sweet. And he was like, he, he asked my friend, and I'm like, oh, where you're from? We said Ohio. And he was like, oh my God, you came from Ohio to see me? Like, you know, like he was just the nicest thing. You know, very sweet guy. I loved him on Smash as well. If you ever saw that show, that was a great show. But it's a huge cue. I mean, we have Catherine Zeta-Jones. We have him. We have all these people coming in this season. That is a testament to the ratings and the success and how Fox feels about us right now, which is why we need to keep watching and not jump off board in the middle of stuff to get them more ratings and get them renewed. Just throwing that out there. Cough, cough. <laughs> I'm just going to say it. But I was, I was so excited when they announced that. I was like, <laughs> and it made me so happy. And I secretly hope we find an excuse for Friar Pete to sing. Maybe in like next week's Bible study, he sings Amazing Grace or something. But I really need to hear Christian Borrell sing in Claremont and watch Martin respond to this. That's just what I need. I need Michael Sheen to be like, whoa, or do something of, of that nature. And I will be very pleased. At the 1303 mark, we have Malcolm and JT arriving at this very kind of ominous looking creepy house. So I feel like this moment might have been an ADR situation. I don't know if it is just because it's a zoomed out shot, it's okay for the words not to perfectly match up the side of Tom's face. No one's really going to zoom in like a freak like I would. Um, but the, that line, can you believe he got the archbishop to open up the file, is either 
a product of a deleted scene or another kind of just let's patch up this cake and move on situation because the entire discussion prior was I'm absolutely not giving you these files. It's private parishioner information. I'm not going to do that. Um, and then now magically, like, well, how did they get to this house? We have to explain how they got to this house. Hey, can you believe that Gil got the guy to blah, blah, blah. Um, so I don't know if there was a scene that explained it and we saw Gil get the intel and then we're like, we don't have time for this. We got to cut it. So then they had to throw that line in there as an explanation for how they're there. Um, or if it was really just an original line and maybe that's how the, the camera worked out. But that was another situation where I was like, hmm just going to skirt past that one, are we? We're going to just pretend like, cool, all right, let's move along, y'all. <laughs> I'm going to go back and rewatch that now just to yeah. do I really a deep dive. I don't know why I didn't bring the resident lip reader into the room for <laughs> this particular item. Durr, get it together. But yes, so then we, we head into this house and it is six kinds of horror film. And I'm going to tell you straight up right now, Angie does not watch horror films because I am a 35 year old that will have nightmares and will not be sleeping. Well, I, I don't, and especially if I'm going to hit up a horror film, it will not be anything to do with possession and religion. No, hell no, ain't happening. Uh-uh, not on my deathbed. Could you do this? It's not going to happen. And here we are in the middle of all the things that give me the heebie-jeebies. So I'm gonna pass this over to Caro, so I don't freak out. Yeah, Caroline's just reveling in all these, uh, in all the these references. As the person who loves horror movies, especially the mishmash between religion and horror, this is just this episode was beautiful. It was like made for me, and I, <laughs> I think we can, Britt, you can cut this out. This is too long, but. The story behind this episode was that I was so tired that I was almost about to go to bed and miss it. And then the last two seconds, I was like, oh, maybe I'll just watch it. And by the first commercial break, I ran across the house to get my phone. I was like, guys, <laughs> it was perfect. So I actually, as we enter the house and we meet Norman's mother, I love that possible reference to Norman from Bates Motel slash Psycho, anybody? Anybody? Even I also, got that and I don't watch those movies. Yeah, that's what <laughs> I was, I was gonna say. Okay, that was about the only reference I got was Norman. And I was like, okay, I know of Norman Bates. Like that's a common <laughs> like name to use. So oh yeah, that is that is pop culture now, more than just like horror pop culture. Yes. Um, and also which one of you had pointed out that the mom looks like um Lorraine Warren in the Conjuring series? Yes, Jess did. Yep. I had not even realized that either. Um, but even the house itself that they're in is kind of, I went back and watched a couple scenes from The Conjuring because that's a movie that I actually like now because I've seen it enough times that it's not scary anymore. <laughs> um, the staircase, the way that the house is set up, especially with the staircase is very similar to the house that they shot The Conjuring at. Not, it's not a complete one-to-one -one correlation, but it gave me very like creepy Conjuring type vibes and Although the way that the mother talked, it was kind of almost kind of campy as a horror fan who has seen enough of these. There are a lot of campy parts about this whole scene, the whole section of it, but that's that's just me hopping on my soapbox. I'm going to get off. <laughs> um, but the one part that I really loved is how Norman's mother, before she lets JT and Malcolm into the room, 
pours salt onto the floor and then tells them to mine the salt and not step beyond that. Because salt, if you are aware, is sort of like a deterrent or like a protection against um, demons and ghosts and the supernatural. And actually, if you know of the, the phrase or the common like lore tradition to throw salt over your left shoulder, mm -hmm. that comes from the idea that like the French used to do that because they thought that they would hit the devil in the eye if they did that. Um, yeah, I know things you never thought you'd knew. And it also has to do with the fact that the left side of the body is considered like demonic. And so like people would think that the devil is always sitting over your left shoulder. So if you throw salt over your left shoulder, you are warding off bad luck, AKA the devil, AKA anything. Yes, if you run in those supernatural horror circles, I sound like such a nerd right now. I, <laughs> I both love it and I'm deeply embarrassed for myself. <laughs> um, <laughs> If you've watched Supernatural, for instance, you definitely went nuts. Or even if you have watched my personal favorite, BuzzFeed Unsolved, you are very aware of this. Um, but it was just a nice little, it was a nice little reminder that, okay, they really did do their homework to some degree with this. And then they entered the room. And this is where I will pass it off to Jess. <laughs> Also, total side note, this is not meant to be in the podcast whatsoever, but the only reason I got the salt thing was because of the movie Hocus Pocus. Is that in I, that movie? Yes, so under in the movie Hocus Pocus, they make a big deal about protecting the little sister by using table salt and putting a circle mm -hmm. around her. Mm -hmm. And so then I was like, oh, like Hocus Pocus. I remembered like, I, I, I know about the salt thing. I just didn't know like the reason. I just knew that like salt is synonymous with horror yeah. movies and protection and things that like was that. my yeah. first experience with that supposedly keeping you from the dead or the evil or something. And I just oh went, my oh my God, like a loser. At some point in this scene, right, right after she puts the salt down, it ended up cutting to a commercial and mm -hmm. it didn't, it took me until the very end of the commercial break to jump into Discord and be like, hey guys, like, I think this might be that scene with the kid at the piano because in promos we got some photos and maybe a short clip of someone at a piano someone young at a piano with a crucifix over their head and a brick wall and it, that's all you saw was the back of them and we were like is this Malcolm is this Martin like how or is it even Watkins knowing what we now know about how he was brought up and his um, grandparents and their religion and it was like I swear like five seconds before the commercial like went back to to the tv and I was like hey guys I think this is the piano scene and they opened the door and it's the piano scene and I was like I called it <laughs> I, was, I was just really proud of myself that I managed to call that I don't usually end up I I don't usually like think during commercials <laughs> we're too busy just e-smashing oh, seriously, during the commercials seriously. <laughs> but it's really funny that you bring up Watkins so funny story that thing that I key smashed about guys you're not going to believe this callback I found um is related to Watkins in this scene um he first of all huge shout out to the actor Adam Langdon that played this dude he just had all the right super slow moves and the creepy mouth positioning and um, I'm sure, I hope, for God's sakes, his voice was digitally altered when it started to have the changing. All of that. I mean, for someone someone that does not watch scary movies, like this was my version of a scary movie. And I was kind of like, oh my God, like it was freaking me out. I'm not going to lie. Okay, I'm not going to lie. While he is at the piano, however, he asks 
if they have any favorite hymns. And he says one. And then the second one he says is, there is a fountain filled with blood. And then he moves on to another one. And that particular hymn is the hymn that the world's creepiest grandma, Matilda Watkins, sings to Gil in interrogation room. The, there is a fountain filled with blood drawn from policemen's veins. And she's like all evil and nasty. And your friend is dead. He'll be nothing but a stain. Like she twisted the words to that hymn. Oh. And there are thousands of hymns for them to bring up. Like that's a very obscure hymn. That is deliberate. That is a call back to alone time, folks. I am Angie, so glad. I was excited. Oh my God. I am so glad you, you did that because I had written down the hymn names to look up, but that wasn't something I was able to get time-wise. And mm -hmm. so I was like, ah, it's probably not that important, but there's got to be something buried in those hymns. Yes. And one of the things I wrote in that analysis that I was like, she rewrote these words. It was creepy. Love that actress as much as she gives me nightmares. Um, and just, I was like, oh my God, this is that thing. This is what they did. And neither of them would have known either because of course, at that point, Malcolm is kidnapped and JT is not the one that was in the room with her. It was Colette and Gil at the time. So it's a nice little callback that should not you know, give our boys any clues or anything like that. It was very, very exciting. And just a nice little off the cuff, like we're going to forget about it and move on to this dude's like head turning sideways and him creepy crawling across the floor and all that fun kind of stuff, Caroline, that you can go ahead and talk about. And I'm just going to mute my earbuds and pretend like it's not going to happen. I'm kidding. I, just, I would never I, mute you. I love you. No, no, it's fine. I just can't <laughs> believe... I think that this kind of shows how much I watch in terms of horror movies because I found this whole scene so campy. I was like cringing internally. And, <laughs> and I'm in the bedroom after... like, oh, I'm like <laughs> Especially afterwards when you guys were saying like, guys, this is really scary. I was like, and? <laughs> like, what? I mean, just like the movements of the movements of him crawling across the floor. I was like, that's really, that is so low production to me because of <laughs> I just okay which is fine it's fine it's a television show it's okay I am on my high horse I'm gonna dismount now and <laughs> talk about <laughs> I had to do one horse girl reference and there it was one per episode I'm gonna talk one per episode only if not more unless there's a horse <laughs> um I sort of wanted to talk about JT and Malcolm start having a conversation about whether Norman is actually possessed or whether he's faking it. And this just brought back a lot of examples to me of instances where in actual history, people have had to debate whether or not someone was actually possessed or if they were mentally ill um, or ill in some other fashion. And one example that really came to mind was um, that of Annalise Michelle, who if you have seen, which I know both of you have not seen or heard of the movie, The Exorcism of, <laughs> and she's shaking her head like, absolutely not. Of Emily Rose. <laughs> yes, The Exorcism of Emily Rose, yep. That I was working is... at a movie theater when that came out and I ran from it oh, every yeah. time. <laughs> This is, this is the real life woman who that movie was based on. So Annalise Michelle was a person 
who there was a whole bunch of controversy because she was displaying signs of both possession and epilepsy. This was a conversation as there should be between both a priest and multiple different doctors, for instance, her neurologist at the time, who thought that she was suffering from epilepsy. So this specific type of epilepsy can cause a condition that I'm going to try and pronounce and my sincerest apologies in advance. This case is from Germany. I do not speak German. It can cause Geishwind syndrome. And one of the symptoms of Geishwind syndrome is hyper-religiosity, which made me think of a certain character in this story, our dear friend Norman, and how he was acting. But overall, this scene was very interesting. I love how they worked in, you know, Norman's pitch dropping very low. And even if it felt very campy to me, the fact that it scared the living daylights out of you guys shows that there was definitely, mm -hmm. they, they did a good job there. And this was just also another fine example of where someone is calling Malcolm out and Malcolm is kind of both like thinking like, oh, is JT going to notice this? And what do I do about this? This was yet another example of someone reading Malcolm for filth. Girl, you are in my him. brain. You are in my brain. My literal next bullet point is giant letters of five times in the first two episodes, two, not three fingers, two, he gets called out by either a suspect or a killer as either saying you're a killer too you have the darkness in you you're one of us like all of these like you have what we have blah 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 and you're in my head jt is standing right there jt yep. makes no comment about the fact that this has been said it never get, gets brought up later which brings me to what my bullet point was are these things really happening or is this in malcolm's head Mm. is this Malcolm's guilt of every time he's around people that are killers and are evil-minded and are similar to his dad and now maybe similar to him since he's doing all these things is he imagining them calling him out we know later in the dream that happens that you know obviously that was not real and that's his subconscious but this was very real so did that really happen like if I had a writer right here in front of me I would want to know like in your writing opinion is this really coming out of his mouth or is this Malcolm because I have a really hard time believing that JT is going to drop that and never bring it up ever yeah especially given the fact that he was pretty terrified of everything that was going on um so I'm, I'm really curious now, like, are these moments real or are they him torturing himself subconsciously? And it's funny that you mentioned, like, is this possibly a hallucination? Because now, like, Norman's mother was acting very kind of, like, it felt very dreamlike, the whole sequence. And, you know, it really makes you think how much really is reality and how much is just Malcolm sort of stewing in his own guilt and emotions. Right. Or like, I mean clearly he's meeting with these people and they're investigating these people, but I don't see other members of the team just sweeping that under the rug and being like, yeah, we're just never going to talk about the fact that he said, you're a killer. And Malcolm just kind of went, what? And that was the end of it. Like, I feel yeah. like JT'd be like, we're going to put a pin in this and on the ride home, we're going to have a chat about everything that just went down. Yeah. Um, 
I also absolutely adore his line afterwards where it's like Malcolm Bright always crossing the line. Like that should just be our show's tagline. Like that's that's it. That's the show. That's the entire show is Malcolm crossing the line. So coming up next, speaking of, of nightmares and hallucinations, we have what, first of all, I originally really thought like this was a real thing. They, they hoodwinked me for a second there until Ainsley flipped. And then I was like, oh, okay, something's amiss. I loved that for a split second, you almost think that, okay, this, this nun is going to help him. She's trying to like, maybe she's going to ask him to pray about it or something. And that's going to make him feel better or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> In Malcolm's nightmare, I really love the kind of switcheroo between um, Sister Agnes and Ainsley. And there's kind of Ainsley and nun form and she's begging him, you know, we, you, first of all, I thought she was begging him to confess. Like you, they're detectives are going to figure it out. So I'm like, why is she begging him to confess? Like this is going to fall on her and then there's the knife and it's like I know what we can do and they're like no 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 we, we can't do this <laughs> um and what I really love is when that switch happens when we go from sister Agnes to to Nunsley as Caro so yes. lovely put it um there's a moment in the middle where there's like this voice that's bright you know like yelling for him from behind and I listened to this about 15 times because I'm like who is it like is this Gil is this JT is it Danny no it's a male voice it is not JT or Gil. It's a random voice. And so I adore the fact that knowing later that this is a hallucination and he wakes up all astoundingly from it, that this is one of the beat cops trying to wake him up at the table. Like he's sitting at his desk and someone is going bright, like trying to get his attention to wake him up. And they weaved it in just like they did in, in previous episodes, like in the trip and stuff where he's hallucinating and you can hear Danny knocking over him talking and all this other stuff. I thought that was a really cool moment, which leads us to our code word, Caro. Yes. So the code word for this week's giveaway is Nunsley. After I just, I had to, the second I saw that, I was like, it's Nunsley. The code word is Nunsley. You're going to spell it N-U-N-S-L-E-Y. And you will send that to our Twitter or Instagram. Those handles are both at Podcast CSA. Send us the code word, hashtag Podcast CSA, and you will be entered into the drawing. If you send us that information, we've adjusted our time now. We're going to go until the next episode air date. So it's going to be Eastern time still, but it will be 9 p.m. on Tuesdays instead of Mondays now. Send us that code word, add those hashtags, and you will get entered into a drawing for some amazing swag. We have some posters. We have all sorts of stickers. We have digital coloring book downloads. We have mugs and coin purses and all these other crazy things that some of the amazingly talented people in our fandom have created, and we want to give them to you. So hit us up. I have a huge appreciation for the fact that it is now protocol in Precinct 16. <laughs> To wear body armor when Malcolm Bright is asleep. It just, it honestly, I wondered if that beat cop was like trying to wake up right and then realized he was like having a nightmare and probably my head can't, is he went straight for Danny and was like, hey, he's doing it again. And she's like, all right, this is what we do. <laughs> just strap up. Strap in. It's time to wake yep. up Malcolm. <laughs> <laughs> she had everyone else point guns in her direction so respect i get it yeah i mean she doesn't want that happening again where every person has their gun whipped out especially since we know the whole right you know, tension going on 
especially for Danny and JT. Yeah. So another really cool thing about this nightmare is the score that plays. Um, when we were back at the church, part of the score back when it was the, the scene of the crime, part of the score was this really gorgeous, like kind of choral, I'm not going to sing because I can't, but it's this really beautiful choral sound of like one person, almost angelic um, and very churchy. Like it makes you feel like you're in a church. And so during this particular dream sequence, that same thing is happening when he's talking to Sister Agnes, which is kind of your symbolism of, you know, the good, the light is going to be here to help you. And then the minute that that flips and it's Ainsley, you have like all these like dun and these eerie sounds and all that kind of just the hairs on the back. You're not get a little creepy. And camera wise, a really cool thing they did when Malcolm wakes up, I mean, he wakes up violently. So I, I get the whole flak jack, like you, you, you could have been hit. The whole cubicle is shaking around him mm -hmm. and they deliberately shake the camera back and forth as well to kind of accentuate the like, this is chaotic, things are going down. With the way Tom played that, you really didn't have to do that. Like the whole cubicle, probably set design is like easy. Like we have, we have to make this last, <laughs> calm down. Um, but this, they actually did this little kind of shake with it too, which is like, he's not right. Like he's trying to figure out where he is and what's going on. And then when he realizes I was asleep, it steadies. So while he's trying to figure out where he is and what's going on, that happens and it was pretty cool. At 2354, we have JT is talking to Gil about the situation. Gil's trying to feel out um, if he's going to report anything. That kind of gives us our first information dump on has he reported it, what has happened really since then. And we learn kind of he's very much struggling with his decision on is justice worth his financial stability potentially with a baby on the way is justice worth his physical um, safety with with a baby on the way and you can very much tell that he is kind of leaning toward is it really worth it even though this incredibly horrible injustice has occurred to him as does happen quite frequently with people of color um, unfortunately things like you know I have a family to take care of and this and that becomes more important than getting the justice that you deserve for that action um, and I also thought, even though that this is in no way kind of part of that storyline, I felt like that really hit on like harassment and like sexual harassment in the workplace and things like that too. Like there are so many people in that place where I have to have this job. I can't not have this job. So I'm just going to grin and bear it. And maybe it's one time and maybe it's 15, 16, 20 on the frequent, you know, you never know. And, and unfortunately you're in, in a place right now where you're not always safe to discuss that stuff and to yeah. have kind of that guarantee of, you know, your job's not going anywhere. You've been done wrong. That's not really how life works, unfortunately. And I appreciated that Gil in this scene was not like, no, man, you have to, come on, blah, blah, blah. Because he could have, because he knows that his, you know, essentially his surrogate son has, has been wronged, but he knows too. He's a person of color too. He knows what has happened and he kind of says, honestly, I really don't blame you too much. Kind of like that attitude of, I get it. I get it. And yeah. that was a powerful scene to be so kind of short and concise and not really very dramatic in terms of the acting. It's just a, a simple conversation, but a lot, of, a lot of feeling in such a simple kind of understated, I think, scene. Yes, absolutely. And I'm glad that they brought up that point that Gil acknowledges that this is really hard because there are so many people in so many different situations like when you go to like a trusted friend or a coworker or anybody and you say hey this horrible thing happened to me and they're like you need to report this right now and you're just 
I mean, specifically, I'm thinking back to the Brock Turner case and to Chanel Miller, who- Believe me, Ohioans know about Brock Turner. Oh, yeah, good. (laughs) But like, that's all I can think of is, you know, her narrative and how when she initially came forward and told people and everyone was like, you need to go report this. And she was saying like, I I don't know what to do. This happens all the time. Mm -hmm. And I'm glad that they weren't just, you know, like toxic positivity all over the place. Like, yes, you need to do this. Yeah. I mean, that is what he, by the terms of justice and the code of right and wrong should do. But life is not black and white. Life Mm -hmm. is a thousand different shades of gray in the middle and things are more important to you sometimes. And you have so many other things to consider that, yeah, there might be a right thing for JT to do for right and wrong, but that doesn't mean it's right for his family or anything like that. And that was a nice touch. Moving on now that Malcolm is awake, he has been escorted back to his loft by Miss Danny Powell. Um, I enjoy any time we put these two together. I'm going to, I'm going to keep it kind of down the middle. I have my own personal ship that I push, but I'm trying to keep that out of my business relationship, if you will. Um, but I, anytime you get Tom and Aurora in a room individually having some deep convo, they're just, they're so good at what they do that it comes across as so genuine and so wonderful And there's a couple moments I want to hit on. And I know some moments that you guys have some stuff to hit on here too. My first thing, I immediately squealed and honestly missed another part of the scene over was the fact that Malcolm pours himself a drink. I'm assuming it's his whiskey. um, And he pours her a glass of water and he hands her a glass of water. And we know, and he knows that this is the correct thing to do because of her previous addiction issues. Aurora has said on social media, um, like someone joked one time and said like, what's Danny's go-to drink, you know? And she's like, she doesn't drink, she has an addiction issue. And like, oh, duh, like that would click immediately once you think about it, she's not going to drink. Um, And the fact that Malcolm knows, he doesn't ask, do you want to drink? None of that, he doesn't think, he goes straight over to the wet bar and pours her a glass of water and just sits it down and that's normal. That is just instant. And I really appreciated that. Um, that was that was a very cool moment. I appreciated that this is another moment of the let me confess your sins. She asks him, is there something you want to talk about? Is there, do you want to talk about it? What's going on? And he does his, no, I'm fine, which we know is complete BS from the horse's mouth. There's another horse reference for you, Kara. Um, oh, perfect. He, from the horse's mouth. Every time he says it, he's admitted it's trash, but he tells her, Oh, I'm fine. No big deal. It's all good. During this conversation, um, I know we're going to talk about painters and some poisoning issues and things of that in just a minute, but I do want to talk about before we get there, um, Danny's line of, uh, or Malcolm says, I think something, what does he say? It's rough out there. or It's scary out there. Something to that effect. And it's bad out there. It's bad out there. Thank you very much. Um, And Danny replies, it's always bad. The difference is, is people are paying attention. And that was such a poignant and powerful line. And I loved not only Aurora, which I love the woman anyway, but Aurora's performance of that was so genuine. I love Tom's reaction there as Malcolm, his, his just like, he doesn't necessarily nod. He doesn't look away in embarrassment. He's just kind of straight staring and um, even my husband was like, he just kind of blank stared at her. Like, is he going to respond to that line at all? But I think that's him just going, shit, she's right. 
Like, and it's just not something that he's had to continually think about in his life because of his privilege, both monetarily and skin pigment. Um, and that was just a line that was so short and so chill. It's not really incredibly lyrical or anything like that, the way it's spoken. And it really gets that across in such a way that was really powerful. Yeah, no, I honestly was driving home the other day and I think I like zoned out and had a moment because that line came to my head and I was like, oh my God, like as a white person, I was like, yeah, that's absolutely true. I'm not going to go into last week's stuff. Yeah, I could, but I'm not gonna. So to wrap up my little part about the, whether you want to call it platonic Brightwell or non-platonic Brightwell, I love that they are giving them deep conversations with each other. We're talking about racism. We're talking about personal demons, what's going on with Malcolm. We're talking about religion. They're talking about major moments that whether this is building into something more than friendship or it's just solidifying um, a bond that's going to make them better at what they do and closer as friends. It's, it's a wonderful thing to see because sometimes in procedurally things like that, you kind of, you lose a little bit of the character development stuff on the side. So I appreciate having that in there and, and giving them a moment to kind of connect. Yeah. So on top of that, they talk about a painting and some issues with lead poisoning. Yeah. So uh, just a little bit of like art stuff here. Cause that's me. Uh, Malcolm says all the best artists went insane and their work destroyed them. And that's, I mean, yeah, you can kind of do that. But Danny repeats that to him afterwards and he makes the point of saying, actually, it wasn't their work. It was the paint that killed them and, and got them sick. And so in classical and pretty much any non-modern paintings, uh, heavy metals were mixed in with other materials to give these vibrant, really rich colors that you couldn't at the time get made anywhere else. So cadmium was added to red and other warm colors to make them extremely vibrant. Lead was added to make very brilliant white that you couldn't achieve in any other way. Uh, and arsenic created some really bright emerald greens. So not only were artists using these, they didn't really have our modern version of protection because first of all, they don't have that. Second of all, why? They don't know anything about all these heavy metals and what they do. So they're breathing in these paints for long periods of time. Uh, they're touching them too. So they're mm -hmm. covered in it. It's probably getting in their faces and things like that. And also it gets in their mouths because Van Gogh liked to lick his paintbrushes because you know when you're painting things and you're not near a cup of water, Van Gogh would lick the end of his paintbrushes to keep them moist. That's and that I tell my is really not to do. That yeah. is something I tell my four-year-old, no, 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 no. And meanwhile, yeah. the, one of the biggest names the of all time best. is like, eh. Yep, yep. That is one of the things that really destroyed him a lot. <laughs> so yeah, so there's your little bit of art history for you. And I definitely can touch more on the effects of lead poisoning later, which we will get mm. to soon enough. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes. So at this point, we now move back to the church after we have the revelation of like, ooh, paint. And so we're headed to see what the paint restorers are up to. We have, again, this same kind of ominous music. And it really sets the scene for everything that's about to happen in this section. It sets the scene for the whole, let's go to the crypt. Who calls the basement of a church a crypt. I get that it totally fills out with this episode, but my husband's entire family is Catholic. I've been to many a Catholic church. I've been to many a Catholic church's basement. Even the oldest Catholic church in the country in Savannah 
no one ever went, let's go to the crypt. <laughs> like that's what it was called. It works. And that leads us to the scene where JT is calling for backup. And that is at 2845 in the timestamp. I'll be honest. So the first time I watched this, I took it as the people on the phone, maybe made some assumptions based on his voice and the way that he spoke. And when I rewatched it for the analysis, I realized like, oh, that is not the case, doofus. Like this is people through word of mouth know the situation that's going on between JT and this cop and the potential for JT to be turning this guy in and getting people in trouble and blah, blah, blah. And so this is like one cop buddy to another screwing over another cop because they're mad at what he could potentially do. Honestly, I'm glad that you brought that up because I thought that that was like a callback to Malcolm's nightmare where he was Mm. like things where reality was getting distorted. So I interpreted that as like a, well, they're trying to play with the paranormal again, but I actually, I like your analysis much better. Let's go with that. So at 2859, Malcolm is waiting kind of upstairs with the Archbishop and Jonah while they're downstairs finding Sister Agnes and not getting the backup they've called for and all that good stuff. And Malcolm kind of changes his tune a little bit in terms of the respect that he shows toward the Archbishop. He actually calls him your grace. And then we have another situation where, do you want to talk? Do you want to confess anything or just get some stuff off your chest? And Malcolm kind of speaks the most that he's spoken to anyone about it while not actually talking about anything. He does reveal that there's a part of his brain that kind of wishes he could be religious. But I feel like if you are not, that that's just something you cannot turn off if you are not. Like once you are in that mindset, um, like that's just not something you can be like, never mind, it's real. Boop, and then you, you go into it. And so I, I think he's kind of in his ways and that's okay, whatever, teach their own. But I think that he, the, uh, the thought of having something that could lift that burden from him, that would help make him feel better, that he could just, you know, pray it out and, and, and let that leave would be just the optimal thing for him. And he is a little sad that he says, like, I wish I could just, you know, say it and everything would go away and it would be all good. And he's just not in a position, both mentally and in the physical scenario he is in right now, that that's something that can happen. But we hear another, will you like to talk? Will you like to confess your sins? And then some interesting turn of events start to happen with Mr. Jonah. Yeah, so our dear friend, Mr. Jonah, starts uh, having some symptoms in the back pew over there. Um, (laughs) Not a religious moment. (laughs) No, not exactly. Something's going on. Uh, so me being the medically inclined person that I am said, you know, sort of put two and two together along with Malcolm and was like, oh my God, it's the lead poisoning. Um, and so then I went back and sort of did a little bit of a deep dive on what actually happens in lead poisoning, because I know a lot about what it does to children who are more than often the people most affected by lead poisoning because they will eat lead paint not gonna get into that <laughs> just his face but yeah I mean you can also be exposed to lead through inhaling it and I at first did not see this coming because I was like oh this dude has a respirator on like I wear right. respirators at work not not the same kind of respirator but like I wear an N95 I was like that thing filters out a lot 
so then I was trying to go back and see like is he actually wearing like the cartridges on there like are, is this thing because like N95s expire and I would assume that you know this guy's respirator expired too so I'm like what what's going on here he would not be affected but regardless you can have chronic built up exposures to lead poisoning and it's actually very very scary when you have a chronic exposure because it can seep into your bones and when it gets to that yeah when it gets to that point it's really, really bad because then it can continuously leak out and that can lead to- <laughs> I'm sorry, I can't even control my face. I'm just like, oh my God. <laughs> yes. And you're having nightmares one way or another tonight. <laughs> yep, oh yeah. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, that is really, really serious when it can sort of develop over time. And especially if this guy does this for a living, mm-hmm. it could, manifest as something similar to what our friend Jonah is experiencing because my first thought was there is no way in hell like this is like they're playing on you know they're doing what a lot of criminal shows do and just like exaggerating all these symptoms and everything and so instantly I was like I'm out I'm going out on a manhunt to prove that they're wrong (laughs) but actually they're technically not wrong and this kind of symptomology can happen from lead exposure you can get what's called lead encephalopathy which is a very fancy word I'm not going to get into but it means problems with your brain Mm -hmm. and that normally can present with a whole lot of different things such as something called ataxia which is very like discoordinated movement which on that front how this man is able to hold a piece of glass and with such like precision and everything that is not something you would see with a person who has ataxia at all. So I'm going to call out the show for that. But (laughs) you can also have altered mental status, which if you've ever worked in the medical field, altered mental status is definitely what that guy was experiencing, as well as delirium. It actually, once it gets to this point, like once it gets to your brain, it it is bad news bears for you. So poor Jonah here. But lead exposure can do a lot of different things to your brain. And actually in adults, um, chronic exposure to lead is more harmful to your cognition or to the way that you process information in your brain. It can do a lot of different things, including, as I found out, according to this article that I found, there is growing evidence of early lead exposure linking to increased frequency of antisocial behavior, including violent behavior. And a number of studies have revealed that antisocial tendencies like violent and aggressive behaviors correlate with environmental stressors like exposure to lead beyond that of even things like SES status. So in a way, I was kind of like, oh, good job show. This actually, you know, there's some merit to how they made this play out. I was kind of like, you know, collapsed, you know, like, uh, unfortunately, criminal minds tends to get a lot of things very wrong and exaggerate a lot of things, but they actually, there's, there's some merit to what they found. So good job for them. At 33.15, Malcolm is on the phone with Martin and Friar Pete, and they're kind of having this 
you're going to have to exercise this demon moment. And it is a moment where Malcolm, again, he's like pushing away the faith side of it. He's like, are you got to be kidding me? Like, this is the stupidest thing I've ever done. And I'll let, you know, my professionals touch on that in just a minute. But I just want to talk about the actual like cinematography and the filming of that particular scene. It's, it's very gorgeous. This, the way the lighting and the way the camera looks with this candle in front of Tom, which the director Antonio put on his, Twitter like the the holding that giant candlestick was all like Tom's idea that was not something that was going to be in that scene and he just decided like it would mean so much more for him to grab this and think that the candle was the ah like this is what's going to scare the demon um which then later apparently leads to the fact that he hits him with it because that would have not been in the script if Tom had not picked it up so that must have been a moment where they're like well let's just add this you could beat him upside the head with it it'll be all good so during this moment he does kind of gradually repeat the phrase over and over the power of christ compels you and i really liked i'm sure it was in the script but like tom's performance there of where it starts off as kind of just like okay yeah the power of christ compels you go away and then it eventually builds into him like almost kind of fear crying while doing it and i feel like that correlates a little bit with they were trying to have malcolm like almost maybe believe a little the louder he got and the more intense it got and whether or not that you know lasts in the future whatever but we have another time where a killer's calling Malcolm out for having darkness in him and being like them. And again, there's no one else around. So maybe at this point, it really does happen. Maybe this is still all figments of his subconscious trying to call him out in the middle of these scary moments. We don't know yet. And then he starts to scream that power of Christ compels you. And there is a scene, I'm going to drop this screenshot into our social media, but there is a scene where that final moment where he's yelling it as loud as he can where you have this gorgeous shot of the camera i'm sorry not the camera the candle in front of him the shot of the flame in tom's eyes and the eyes are also kind of watery like he's scared and intent like it is just the coolest frame of shot that i i just stared at it i was like this is some gorgeous work this is really beautiful and to think of the fact that like so on the fly tom decides he wants to do this candlestick so then the crew went oh we can kill it and decided on the fly we're gonna get this shot you know just a testament to the brilliance of the work we have behind the camera just as much as it is in in front of the camera moving on to exorcisms and latiny things and all that good stuff yeah so i'm a humanities person i can't help it so we get in this exorcism before he yells the power of christ compels you uh we get some latin here me being me had to you know go turn on the subtitles so i could get the specific words down and go look them up and whatnot and i don't know if anybody else managed to get the words and look them up uh latin is extremely tricky to translate because latin is a dead language despite the fact that our romantic languages are derived from latin itself but I took two semesters of Latin in college over three years ago. So I am not an expert in this, but I have a little bit of knowledge stuck in my brain. And I was like, let's see what I can do. So we have four lines of Latin. I'm not gonna like go crazy with them, but I translated them as best as I could in this. And mind you, this is not an entire exorcism. If you look up the rite of exorcism, uh, especially uh, Malcolm points it out at the crime scene, he picks up a small book. That right. it's, I was scrolling forever. I was like, when does this end? Where are these lines? So obviously he can't perform an entire hours long exorcism, but yes, it's not just a few lines that you yell in Latin and poof, demon, goodbye. But so we have 
like I said, four lines of Latin. And this caught my attention the second time I was watching because when you know how things sound in a language and they're pronounced the wrong way when you're looking at the words, it sticks out to you. So when I saw these words, the way they were being pronounced by Friar Pete sounded like they were being pronounced as Italian. A lot of words from Italian sound and look like words from Latin, but there's differences in spelling, differences in pronunciation, and they sometimes change the meaning. So the one word that uh, that I picked out that I was like, wait, is he speaking in Italian or Latin? Was a word called vincit, which actually it's spelled with a V. And in Latin, anything with a V is actually pronounced with a W. So it should be winkit. And so that got me diving down a rabbit hole that I'm not going to take all you guys down. But anyway, I came to find out this morning that this is ecclesiastical Latin, not classical Latin. I studied classical Latin. That was the spoken one. Ecclesiastical Latin is what's used in the Catholic Church. Ecclesiastical Latin sounds like Italian. So I was about to call out some mispronunciations of words, but... I am glad that they're not actually mispronunciations and that the writers did their research because they're pronounced properly, at least according to that rabbit hole I went down. So uh, the best way I could translate it, which some of the lines are a little rough, like I said, really tricky. Uh, the first one, humiliare subpotente mano dei, is essentially uh, to be under a mighty hand. So I'm going to assume that he's telling this person, you are under a mighty hand of like the devil. And then we have da honorem deo et patria omnipotenti, which is essentially give honor to God and the all-powerful father. Uh, then there's deus repelit and deus vincit, uh, which is God drives out or refutes or rejects and God conquers. And then we have the last line, dominus autem ad infernum. He actually says infernu, which is not a Latin word. So there's many suffixes to end. But it's looking like I translated that line multiple times with different uh, meanings and it's now the master sends him to hell. So that's the basis of what I could get from that Latin. There's a lot of inferencing in there, not complete sentences, but yeah. So shout out to the writers for doing their research with that ecclesiastical and classic Latin because it's not something that really matters and pretty much nobody would like catch that unless they did what I did and went down a rabbit hole with it so <laughs> which is why we need to trust our writers to yes. do their jobs because yes, yes, yes. they're doing it and then some yes so I'm very impressed that you were able to do that Jess um, <laughs> me too to be honest <laughs> been a while in my yeah in my research which I did way more than I, I learned way more than I expected to even as someone who is Catholic and who knows a lot about exorcisms, I guess. <laughs> I found out that there actually is no, even though there's like a rite of exorcism, like there's a book and everything, there is no like exact like way that you're supposed to carry it out. There's like multiple passages that you can reference and stuff, but it sounds like you can sort of, you know, tailor it to however you need to, which I guess works for our writers in this way. Um, and you actually don't even need to do it in Latin, as I found out, which was very surprising to me. It supposedly does not matter what language you use. And according to a source that I found, it is actually 
considered to be comforting to do it in the person's like the person who is possessed like in their native language which makes sense to me because if I had a priest standing in my face and screaming in Latin I would be terrified too <laughs> right and if you used a totally different language I would probably be more likely to like if I wasn't actually possessed I would probably be more likely to believe it <laughs> but my biggest thing here is the whole the power of Christ compels you that is as far as I could find nowhere actually something that you have to say at all that is almost directly a thing from the exorcist the movie the exorcist and the exorcist only there's a whatever you want to call it Jess like in the bible in corinthians about it but that's not required but I think that it's as Angie pointed out it was kind of crucial for Malcolm to say that because he needed something to sort of latch onto in order to actually go through with all of this. So I found that amazing too. But I had also found just this one little interesting caveat that you are technically not supposed to perform an exorcism if you are not Catholic whatsoever or Christian whatsoever. Or a priest. Or, or well, ordained. <laughs> yes. Well, actually, actually, there are two different types of exorcisms, one of which a lay person or a lay, like faithful person, like a person who is Catholic can perform. Um, and there is a book available for $6.95 if you want to buy it. <laughs> <laughs> but technically the, the form of exorcism <laughs> I honestly was so tempted. I was like, if I had one more week, I would buy this and I would see what's in it. But the the exorcism that Malcolm was doing is one that should only be done by a priest who has specific, you know, training in this because it is be incredibly dangerous for, yeah, you know, suspend your disbelief or whatever, however you want right. to. <laughs> but yeah, very interesting. Yeah, my source had that in like big red letters when I looked up what the rite of exorcism was for the Catholic Church. And it was just like, this should not be performed by anyone who's not a priest. And I was like, okay. Yep, yep. <laughs> so after this, after we kind of get through the most climactic parts of the episode, we end up back in the office where Gil is rightfully just berating this cop on the other line um you know you give us backup if we ask for backup he identified himself basically you know cursing him out as much as Gil's going to curse him out on network television rightfully so the part about this that really hit me and this is another screenshot I can share there is this gorgeous shot of essentially we're looking through the conference room window at the team minus Gil because Gil is in his office and you have JT sitting like kind of slouched, just defeated on the conference table. You have Danny and Malcolm standing in front of him, but not blocking him. There's like a triangle situation. And then you have Gil yelling. And I just thought this was so beautiful and symbolic about like, these are, these are JT's line of defense. Gil is the front line. He's going to be the Papa bear and he's going to read these people, the riot act and just go off. But then it was very much like Danny and, and Bright are there too. Like we got you we'll protect you. We're going to stand up for you. We're going to do this. And it was this just gorgeous framing that was so symbolic and beautiful that gave me all the happy feels for, for our JT. Although what did not give me the happy feels was how that conversation ended. I'll come back to that in, in just a second. 
I am very intrigued about this line that we hear from Danny, the, this is my family line. And I've talked to you guys about this in our key smashing bonanza from earlier, mm-hmm. but we know based on Canon information, it's very hard for me to separate with Danny Canon versus what's in my head, because in my head, Danny's father was a policeman who was killed on the job. That is my head Canon. I have to like move my head Canon aside. Um, we know definitely that he passed when she was 16. We do not have any further information on the, the where, the why, the how, when it comes to that. And we really haven't heard anything about mom. We don't really know what's going on with her. And this was the first time that we get some kind of inkling about maybe what is going on with mom, because Danny says the phrase, this is my family, as though maybe there isn't others. So I don't know, you know, is mom still alive? Has mom also passed and we just haven't talked about it out loud to anyone? Are mom and Danny estranged? Did they have a falling out after the loss of her dad? Did Danny have a rebellious phase and mom couldn't handle her because she was trying to deal with all this other stuff? Um, Did mom find out about addiction issues? Did mom also have addiction? There's just so many backstory, you know, pathways we could take with this. But it was really the first time that they gave us any clue about mom whatsoever. It's a very vague and not detailed clue. But we do know that if mom is alive, it doesn't sound a whole lot like they have the best of relationships. We'll see where that leads. Basically, we need a Danny backstory episode big time. My God, yes. Get on it, writers. I talked about this in the teaser episode. I am here for the Danny post OD episode what happened afterwards i want it i want it bad at the end of this scene um after danny does say that line this is my family jt says the phrase i'll take care of it and i'm not gonna lie i'm not a conspiracy theorist and i try to kind of keep myself reined in a little bit it makes me a little nervous the way he says i'll take care of it the way afterwards he's very much like just downtrodden and depressed my theory here is that he's gonna quit Not that I think we will lose Frank or JT by any means, that he will very soon afterwards come back probably. Mm -hmm. And that he'll be in episodes where they're trying to convince him to come back. So I don't think we're losing Frank time by any means. But my interpretation of this is he now knows, because he says, I have to protect my family. And at first he's talking about, you know, Tally and, and baby Tarmel. And then Danny says, this is my family. And so he says, I know I'll take care of it. And I think this is him saying the way to protect my family is to leave because if I'm with them and I call for backup, they're not going to get it. Like had that been a moment where they were like multiple people coming at them or they were in a very dangerous situation at the church, they would have been, you know, SOL because that backup was not coming. And JT feels that that is because of him, even though it's not, it's because he's the one asking that that could be a problem. I could see this being like the best thing for my safety, for my family's safety, and to keep my team safe is for me to walk away or to ask for a transfer somewhere else. I don't know how that's going to play, but that's my like interpretation. I, I wanted more Aurora and I wanted more Frank. Like I wanted to see more and I want more Dresa and Gail and all this too, but I really wanted to see them be able to kind of flex their acting muscle and they're giving them an opportunity and they're no, not surprisingly just knocking it out of the park. I mean, they're, they're doing mm-hmm. such a great job with what they have. And it's nice to see, like, we have our lead. We know who our lead is. He's not going anywhere. Now let's let the supporting cast be like, look, we can help. We hold him up. We're good at what we do. He's not the only one. And they're, they're nailing it. I mean, they're doing such a great job. 
39-36, this is our final time where Malcolm in the episode is asked to confide. And the beauty of this moment is that the person that's asking him actually knows the situation. It's Martin. So it's the one person that if he wanted to confide, he could let it all out, just word vomit the whole problem because Martin knows. Martin is very much aware. I appreciated how they deliberately had Michael do kind of the Friar Pete stance during this like he was kind of holding his hands deliberately the way Friar Pete does and every now and then he would kind of open them as though like a a priest so it was deliberate the way it was priest-ish the way he was asking him to confide Um, and the beauty of this is the one person that he can talk to about everything is the last person in the world he wants to actually talk to about any of this and so that was a nice little Martin opened our confessions with the kind of farcical my babies are amazing even though they're murdering people And then by the end, we're back to Martin again, doing the, my son, confide in me. And it's just all a bunch of nonsense with Martin. Come on now. Um, I do want to talk about Malcolm's kind of, I don't even know if it's an epiphany, but it's a a breakthrough moment in this scene Mm -hmm. where he says the phrase, um, talking about the fact that Martin is there. Um, He says, I'm coming to terms with it. And then he pauses and he said, and that is not a good thing for you. And he says, Dr. Whitley. Dr. Whitley, not father, not any of the, we had made that progression where we shifted to dad and father and all that. And now in a blink of an eye, look, she's having a religious experience. I'm just, I'm so happy. (laughs) Yes. In the blink of an eye, we're back to Dr. Whitley. And I love the theme. One of the themes of the first season is, is Malcolm like his father? And he's continually asking, is that there? Can I be like my father? And now we've broken through that barrier and he's admitting, I am a little like my father. My father's in there, but I can close him up and trap him now and get him the F out. Like, so we've moved past. We're no longer asking if he is like his father. Now we're saying, how do we get rid of it? How do we block it off? How do we compartmentalize that and say goodbye? And I wasn't expecting that conversation. I wasn't expecting, so, and neither was uh, Martin by any means. So it was really nice to kind of out of nowhere, Malcolm has very much been like the victim. Like, I don't know, blah, blah. And out of nowhere, he was kind of like shoulder straight, like, I can shut you out, son. And he's like, get ready to leave. Like he is absolutely over it. And I like that a lot. I liked that. I thought we were going to very much have like nothing but tortured Malcolm the whole time, which the wump in me, I love. But every now and then you got to let him stand on his own two feet and be like, I got this. I'm a grown man. I know what I'm doing, all that stuff. And our final scene, I got to be honest, real quick. I worked in a prison. I taught English in a prison. I have never seen the way those guys went down the stairs ever performed in a real prison scenario. Like even in prison, not a mental institution, in prison, I never saw, and maybe some people call me out, please. If you also work in a prison and I'm wrong and it was just my prison, that's fine. Um, I have never seen them have to be like X amount of steps apart and it's like, stop. And then the whole stairway stops. Where I worked, there were positions you had to be in when you were moving anywhere. Like you had to have your hands crossed if you were not cuffed for anything, if you were just moving from like, you know, a gym to a lunch, to a yard, all that stuff. But I've never seen that type of distance. And then you would stop people on the stairs. They would never do that because then if something goes down, you can't get up to the problem. Like you want everyone on the same floor because if a floor and a half up, someone's deciding to fist fight or throw somebody over a railing or all that stuff, like there's 
a lot going on there. I get as the writers, we need them to have a moment of privacy. So it all works out. But the prison worker in me went, no, 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 that would never happen. Now let's talk about Exodus, folks. It's a book in the Bible. We know that much. It means to exit in a very grand and large way. And apparently we've got a Bible study group that's planning themselves an Exodus. All right. I just, I need to see Martin in a Bible study. Like, yeah. a little what? sad that we might go over that. Like, we might glaze over it. I when in reality, not. can like, we please put the Bible in front of him and make him like recite some lines oh or gosh. talk about something? Like, does the theologian, Noah. does the theologian in me get to have fun in other episodes? Like, is this my I only excited, one? I am excited that it looks like Hector is also in the Bible study because the more Hector, the merrier. That's always a good thing. I'm reserving my judgment because nothing has happened yet for this. I am a little concerned in terms of how they would write this to be plausible, but again, we'll see. I haven't seen it yet, so I'm not getting all antsy in the pantsy about it at this point. I am a little concerned. Yes, I said antsy in the pantsy. I'm okay with it. Um, I am a little concerned about consequences because much like Martin ending up in big boy prison, once he escapes we have, we've hit a road. This is Ainsley stabbing Endicott. Like there's last, last season, there was a lot of speculation. He's going to escape and he's going to threaten Gil or he's going to take Malcolm with him, blah, blah, blah. And I was hardcore. No, 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 no. He cannot escape because then we lose the avenue of interaction with Martin. He's either consistently on the run or he's so locked up, you can't get to him. And that kills it. So I'm really interested in how this is going to fly if and when, how long he's going to be out. And then are we just going to magically paint over it and he's going to end back up in Claremont with all of his amenities and life's good. I don't know. I'm reserving judgment, but I am a little bit um, concerned that so early in our season, something like this is potentially happening. Yeah. Maybe he's going to pull a Ted Bundy and he's just going to keep escaping from prison over and over again. And (laughs) I just, I I trust our writers. I do. So this is all just in my head, like, ooh, I'm assuming that since you're the professional geniuses that you are, you have all these loopholes figured out and life's good. Uh, But that's kind of it. We are left with Martin and Friar Pete and Bible study company deciding it's time for them to hightail it out of there. And I'm intrigued because if you've ever watched any kind of prison break movie or TV show, generally it's not a large group rolling out because that's noticeable. (laughs) (laughs) Like when half your cell block is like deuces and they leave with the laundry, that doesn't really go well. It's like one to maybe two guys. And I watched the show Prison Break when it was on television. And the biggest problem with Prison Break was season one was the fact that he had to continually tell people about his plan because stuff kept going wrong. And by the end of it, it's like a nine, it's like, you know, the Partridge family trying to exit out of this. You don't get that reference. I'm old enough. I do. Um, like trying to roll out of this place with like a van and they need like a tour bus to get out of there. And I'm a little like, how's this going to play? But we'll see. Mm-hmm. That wraps up the episode. We do have a promo to discuss, however, and some speculation. So I'm going strictly based off like the 30 second promo because I decided I was just going to focus on that one thing since they're releasing footage every six minutes. I wasn't going to be able to keep up with the different things that they were particularly giving out. <laughs> So the thing that struck me the most, and the one thing I will talk about in in the promo is this whole, we're headed to Malcolm's alma mater, and it seems that there was an incident where Malcolm was in a closet for three days, like he was bullied, 
and that no one came looking for him or he was never found whatever we'll get that clarification figured out but for three days he was stuck in the closet and bullied by these other people and the first thing that went through my head was oh you mean like john watkins yep 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 yes thank you that is the first thing i went and parallels now between john watkins who hopefully is going to return as mr boots sometime soon just throwing it out there michael raymond james are you busy we could use you (laughs) and i mean that was really my biggest takeaway was like like there's a comparison and there's a parallel there what did what did you guys see anything yeah same same thing that was i had two points on my notes and that was the first one that you know immediately i went back to watkins so i was like are they going i really god i hope they like touch that parallel please yeah but that and then just you know the whole thing playing out with martin escaping and oh oh i don't know ending up back at jess's so like like that's not the first place they're coming to look for him, by the way. His previous yeah. residence. Yeah. His previous like, residence with his like ex-wife. Yeah. So those you know, are the, the place where the he killed things. people and put bodies and trunks in the basement. That's not where he's headed, right? I just can't wait to see if it actually does play out where like in the promo where he goes, honey, I'm home. I am just dying to see Jessica's reaction. Is this going to be like a shining type moment where it's like, here's Johnny. And you just see the wife be like, <laughs> like I, I'm dying to see, or I'm also wondering now, does he say that to Jessica or to Ainsley? Oh, because she does that. Could be, that could be very different if he runs into Ainsley for the first time. Ainsley, who who is kind of starting to remember some things, and we know that Martin, for a fact, does know what happened. So I'm wondering, does he, is Martin has to be aware of what Malcolm said to her, right? Like he has to know that it's supposed to be mum's the word around Ainsley. Yeah, yeah. So. I uh, yeah i don't know jess's jess's initial reaction if it is her that he says that to has got to be to immediately throw whatever alcoholic beverage it is at his face tumbler and all not just the liquid just bank, like yes. right into the face yes. yes yep to which he's going to respond with oh you just ruined my my cardigan like <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. so that's pretty much our mm-hmm. wrap up i'm getting a little nervous because i know we got to be getting close here to probably having a week off or something happening our weeks getting to may do not add up to 13 so i don't know if they're going to try to split like every four or will they do like a three-week hiatus in the middle or something like that after that dreaded episode six that we've all been told about and should be terrified for Um, which would make sense because they took christmas break before they started filming seven Mm -hmm. yeesh Okay, I'm not going to think about that. I'm in my happy place. We're ready to see Malcolm's alma mater and we're ready to see him in like a zip up sweatpants outfit because there's something we don't see Malcolm in frequently. Casual Malcolm. Casual Malcolm is always a welcome sight. Yeah, let's bring that on. And on that note, we're going to let you guys go. Don't forget that Nunsley is your code word for this week. N-U-N-S-L-E-Y. Shoot us a shout out with a tag on social media, Twitter and Instagram with that code wording be entered for a chance to win some of our swag that is due tuesday by nine o'clock eastern standard time and other than that we will catch you guys next week so see yeah bye-bye <laughs>